Well, very good. Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to the letter of Philemon. This is our fourth week in the letter of Philemon. Next week, we'll wrap up here. Uh, 25 verses. Philemon is a short letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to this man named Philemon. He's a wealthy Christian. Uh, he's a, he has many servants, many bond servants, many slaves, as some of your texts might say. Uh, Onesimus is who, the, who Paul writes this letter on behalf of. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful of copies back there on that table. Feel free to grab one uh, if, you don't, um, if you don't have one in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you this morning. Uh, we love God's Word. Uh, we love that He has given it to us so directly. Uh, we love that we can go to it and understand who He is and who we are and what He requires of us. And it's a great blessing to be uh, together and to study the Word of God together. So this morning we're going to look at Philemon, uh, where I'm going to read the letter in its entirety, uh, and then we'll get started. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and at the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, I just did Onesimus, imprisonment. That was, that was, I just got real susical there. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me in behalf, of, behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay you to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
So in our time together in Philemon, we've looked at this story that kind of lies behind this, this letter, and we've processed through it quite a bit. Like I mentioned earlier, Philemon is a wealthy Christian. He lives in Colossae. He hosts the church in Colossae in his home. Uh, and so uh, every week, he has a group of Christians come into home. Probably multiple times a week, he has a group of Christians come into his home where they worship together, where they sing hymns, they sing songs together, where they read scripture together, and then where they read probably one of Paul's letters uh, to them or to uh, one, a letter that had circulated around, uh, they read that as well. And so uh, Philemon is hosting this church in his home, and because he's relatively wealthy, because he's a homeowner, uh, he has servants or slaves, or your text might say bond servants. Um, Onesimus was one of these bond servants, and he was unhappy. He was frustrated, and so he winds up running away. He runs away to Rome. 1,200 miles away, he runs away. 1,200 miles away, he goes to Rome, he seeks to blend in, to disappear, to move on with his life as a free man, but we understood as we spoke about last week that that was an illusion, that freedom was an illusion, but God has a different plan for Onesimus because when he gets to Rome, 1,200 miles away from his master in Colossae, he runs into the man who led his master to Christ, the apostle Paul. And so God clearly has a different plan for Onesimus. He clearly has a different plan. This is what we call a peculiar providence or sort of a strange outworking of God's grace in the life of of Onesimus. Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul. Paul is in prison, which makes this kind of even more complicated. Not sure quite how this works. Paul's in prison. He says he's in prison with Epaphras. Timothy is there with him, right? And Paul meets Onesimus. And Paul, obviously, because we know the Apostle Paul and the portrait of him in Scripture, he preaches the gospel to Onesimus. Now, Onesimus has a very unique situation, and he probably received the gospel uh, probably after quite a few conversations, probably with Paul and then maybe with Timothy, maybe with Epaphras. And so Paul then goes to write this personal letter to Philemon because Onesimus realizes that he cannot continue the way that he, he, has, he has been going about his life. He cannot continue doing what he's doing. Rather, he needs to submit to the earthly authority that's over him, understanding that the authority that has been put over him in Christ Jesus is even greater. And so he realizes that he has to go back to Colossae. So he travels with Tychicus back to Colossae and hand delivers this letter to his master, to Philemon. And Philemon receives then Onesimus back. More, more than just a bondservant, but as a, as a beloved brother. We like to think then that, Philemon, or that Onesimus was uh, integrated back into the home of Philemon and then he, he was also part now of the church in Colossae, a vital part, a brother in Christ. So as we look at this text together, we see one particular chunk that we kind of want to pull out and focus on. We see so many ways that the gospel is impacting the life of Onesimus and the life of Philemon and so much crossover. We talked initially, or last week, we talked about the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom, the understanding that when Christ, uh, when, we, uh, when we receive the truth of the gospel, when it takes root in our hearts, we become free. We're no longer enslaved to sin. And that freedom isn't the ability to do whatever we want, but freedom is the ability and desire to do that which we were created for. 
And so uh, Onesimus comes to a real understanding of this for the first time when he receives the gospel. We've also seen intersection points that, that, uh, that, that in verse 11 where Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and useful to me. The gospel makes us useful. No longer are we people who, uh, who have, of, have little use to one another, but we are called to love one another in a radical way and become dramatically useful to one another in Christ Jesus. So we see some of these gospel intersections happen, and oftentimes when we speak about the gospel, we use financial language, and that's the way we're going this morning. We use financial language because that's the way that the Bible talks. It uses financial language. Paul uses this language so freely, these metaphors so freely, uh, primarily because he was a Pharisee saturated in the, in the law in the Old Testament, and that's the way that, that's the way that he talks about how God's people will be brought back to God. So we have a handful of terms, right? A handful of terms that pop up over and over and over again in Paul's writing in the New Testament and even in the Gospels and, and the other apostles who write uh, in the New Testament. Uh, let me just give you a couple of these. I think it would be helpful just to hear them, have them land on your ear. And I'm going to give you a couple of texts too. These are not exhaustive, but I'm going to give you a couple of texts and maybe a definition. So here's one word that's financial language that we use regularly. Redemption. Right? Redemption is the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or the clearing of a debt. That's redemption. Right? Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. And he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul writes, Let him, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Another word that pops up time and time again, reconciliation, another financial term. The action of making financial accounts consistent or harmonization. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 5.18, and this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Colossians 1.19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Debt. Debt. This is kind of where we're going this morning, this idea of debt, something typically money that is owed or due. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, And you who are dead in your trans tra trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So I'm going to stop there because I'm going to put you to sleep because daylight savings time. But the reality is that Paul, throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, all of Scripture points to and uses this financial language when speaking about the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus or the salvation that is set to come for speaking about the Old Testament. So even a word like forgiveness that we use regularly in this context, uh, as Christians, our understanding of forgiveness, this has its roots in financial language, right? Regarding a debt that is owed and the party that is owed cancels the payment. That's forgiveness. 
So you can quickly see the intersection points, especially when we get somewhere like verse 17 in this letter. Right? Paul says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me, Paul. For if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So all of a sudden we have this financial dimension that makes itself available to us in this text. And therefore we have a clear gospel intersection. So we're going to think about three things here just in these few verses. Three things. Well, two things actually related to the text and then one to demonstrate how we're in sort of the same place as as, uh, as Onesimus. So, two things that Onesimus owes, right? He owes himself to Philemon. Secondly, he owes Philemon money because he stole it. And then, like I said, the third thing that we'll explore sort of in conclusion this morning is we are in the same position as, as Onesimus. So, Onesimus owes himself to Philemon. Now, that's a strange thing to say, right? There's a, probably a different cultural understanding of this. It seems strange, but the work that Onesimus was designated to do wasn't happening, right? He's a bondservant of Philemon, and the reality is the things that he was designated to do in Philemon's home just simply weren't happening. We talked about this when we thought about the idea of being useless or being useful. What does it mean to be useless? Well, it means not performing the duties or, that, or tasks that you're assigned to do. And so Onesimus owes himself to Philemon. And we've all, we've all worked a job probably where someone on our left or our right, when we're doing whatever it is we're doing, uh, where they're not pulling their weight, right? Where they're not, they're not living up to the expectations that they have. They're not living up to your expectations or the expectations that the boss or, or, a, or, in this case, a master has. Similar situation here. Masters like Philemon had complete societal rights over their bondservants, over their slaves. And in most instances, again, there's a cultural difference here. Just as an aside, in most instances, in most instances, it would seem like in the case of Philemon, this would be true too, that they really did respect their bondservants. In most instances, this would be the case. Now, there are many historical accounts of bondservants. They were allowed to build wealth. They were allowed to earn their own freedom. They were allowed to marry. They were allowed to even run a business. Like, that's the reality of it. But this all fell under the master's purview and what the master would allow as long as the designated duties were performed. So Onesimus owes himself to Philemon because he ran away, didn't perform those designated duties. And so he owed himself to Philemon. Paul recognizes this and makes that connection for Philemon. He just calls it out right away. He just calls out that this connection is here, and which is, I think, why he writes verse 14, right? He says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. He understands the societal debt that Onesimus owes to Philemon and, appears, and appeals to Philemon's goodness of his own accord. And Paul says he preferred to do nothing without Philemon's consent because Onesimus needs to, in good faith, make things right with his master. And Paul urges Philemon to see the big picture, not just the societally constructed situation. And that kind of leads us into the second idea here, especially in verses 18 and 19. Again, Paul writes, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Right? So we see that Onesimus probably stole from Philemon as he ran away out the door. Probably grabbed something on his way out. 
I don't know what it was, probably some money, something that he could sell, got rid of it to maybe fund his trip to Rome, but he stole something. And so what Paul does, <laughs> paints a picture of the gospel. He takes it on himself, right? He takes it on himself. He stands in for Onesimus. And now this makes sense, but Paul says that he has become Onesimus' spiritual father, right? Verse uh, 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He's appealing to Philemon. He's appealing to his goodness, right? As a spiritual father to Onesimus. He said he even loved to keep Onesimus around him during, uh, in order that Onesimus might serve him with the gospel. But he understands what must be done. And so the financial side of things, Paul says there's a debt here that's owed, a financial, a real tangible, practical financial element here. I'm going to take that on myself. I, Paul, charge that to my account. Now, there's a really interesting piece here. At least I think it's interesting. Maybe you won't. It's really interesting here. Verse 19, the second half of that verse. Look at that. What Paul says, he says, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Now again, here's an instance where Paul is, is a little bit tough to understand. Again, Peter says this. He says, Paul, that guy, he's, he's, a, little, he's a little out there in the things that he says. And so we need a little bit of help. We need a little bit of help understanding this. Um, and so Paul makes this statement clear, but there is a clear underlining, uh, uh, there, even though the, the statement at first glance looks to be unclear, Paul clearly is being consistent in pushing forward in his understanding of his gospel picture. So what does Paul mean when he says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self? Because he sort of seems to flip that idea, right? He says, charge that to my account, but wait a second, you owe me. William Hendrickson restates Paul like this. He says, Philemon, instead of my owing you this money, you really owe me. What? Yes. Far more besides, for you owe me your very self, your very life as a believer. Wait, that's really bold, Paul. You owe me your life as a believer? Calvin says it like this, There is nothing that you could refuse to give me, even though I should demand yourself. Paul is saying, Philemon, receive Onesimus back, and anything that he stole from you charged to my account, but let's get this straight. It's you who owe me, not I that owe you. I want to make sense of this because this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Paul is saying, you already owe me a lot because God saw fit to use me as an instrument. He, God saw fit that I be instrumental in your hearing of the gospel. And so you need to know that it's not I that owe you, but you that owe me. <laughs> Philemon's spiritual life and vitality came as a result of Paul's labor for the gospel. Now the, now, the point here is not the financial element. We've got to get past that. We've got to move beyond that. The point here is not the financial element. Rather, the point here is an elevated understanding of the role of the Christian in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Paul had such a high view of this. 
He said, no, the, the gospel goes forth. It doesn't just like magically grow and go out. It uses human means to accomplish its purposes. When God sends forth his word, he does it through people. That's the way that he does it. That's the way that he's seen fit to do it. Broken, sinful, human flesh takes forth the word of God and it lands perfectly on the hearts of those who would receive it and it grows and it produces all that it intends to and it accomplishes all its purposes. So Paul knows that God's way of bringing people to himself is through people and he's very serious about it. So serious that he could say to Philemon, I'll take on that debt, who knows how big that was. Who knows how that big that debt was that Onesimus owed Philemon. He says, I will take on that debt. Paul, you're in a prison cell in Rome. Paul didn't have a lot of means. He didn't have a lot going for him. At least at this stage in his life. He says, I'll take that on myself. But even more than that, the gospel is so much greater that you who received it through me are actually the one who owes me. He's very serious about it. So much so that he thinks that the person who hears and responds to the gospel when faithfully proclaimed by another, that person owes the second person his or her life. That's impactful. Think about it like this. Think about it like this. Just ask yourself this question. What is the greatest thing that I can do for someone? What is the greatest thing that I can do for someone? The answer is share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Share the gospel with them. There are a lot of great things that we can do for people in our day-to-day. There really are. What is the best thing that I can do for them? Offer them eternal hope in Christ Jesus. Because everything else we do is temporary. Everything else we do meets a temporary need. This is the only way that we can address the, the world's greatest need. is to preach the gospel, hands down. It's not tough to wrap our minds around. Everything else we do for people Those needs are temporary. As people, we have one great need to be redeemed. To be restored into right relationship with our Creator. And that comes through only through the gospel. And the gospel comes to us through the faithful witness of believers. Paul says in Romans 10, 11 through 15, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Understanding the word preach here isn't like sermon on a Sunday morning, but proclamation. The idea that we go out into the world and that we proclaim the truth of who God is and Jesus Christ, and we share the gospel. We give them an understanding of how their greatest need has been met in Christ Jesus. That's what preach means here. That's the proclamation. And so Paul faithfully proclaimed the gospel to Philemon in Ephesus. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel to Onesimus in Rome. And so he says, Philemon, I'll take that financial debt on that Onesimus owes you, but in reality, it's you who owe me. 
But don't get this wrong, okay? Don't get this wrong. This is not like a lording over, right? In some sense, it can seem that way as we read this at first glance. Like, oh, so Paul is saying that he's so important that without him, he couldn't have been saved. Paul's not saying that at all. Paul isn't making this about him at all. Rather, what he's doing is saying the greatest thing in life that he can offer is not paying a financial debt, but proclaiming the gospel. That's the greatest thing that Paul says that he can do. And subsequently, that's the greatest thing that we can do. We could take everybody's debt on in this room. If we all threw our debt in the pile right there and said, we'll take it all on, someone stood up and said, yeah, I'll pay for all of that, all of the financial debt, proclaiming the gospel is greater than that. That's where, we, that's where Paul is going. That's where we need to get our minds around this. So the question is, do we believe that? If we've trusted Jesus, the greatest thing that we can offer is the gospel. <laughs> so here's how some people apply this. This is... I'm just gonna. I'm gonna give you the answer to this. This is. This is not right. This is not right. This is a sanctified opinion, but I don't think that this is right. Sanctified opinion means it's me saying it, but I think I have pretty good reason for saying it. So, okay, cool. Good. Good thing we cleared that up. Here's how some people apply this. They say the gospel is the greatest thing that I can offer. So I go into a restaurant and instead of leaving a tip, I leave the track. Have you ever seen anybody do that? Instead of, instead of leaving a tip, I leave a track. <laughs> In my experience, that just makes people angry. It doesn't, it doesn't, they're like, oh, look at this, this is great. No, it's immediately in the trash can and like, come on now. I'm working hard. I'm putting in, I'm laboring here. It just makes people angry. Let me give you the alternative here that I think that Paul would advocate for. Instead... Give the server 30%. Give them 30%. Give them 100%. Even if they were terrible. And let them know that a 30% tip is nothing compared with the immeasurable gift that God has given you in Christ Jesus. Yes, it sounds awkward, but the reality is, that's the reality. Picture the gospel. Yeah, right. This is the service industry. Like They need to work for it. They need to earn their tip. But the reality is it's a lack of understanding of the truth of the gospel and how it came to us, right? Because the reality is we were all in the service industry. If we want to be crude about it, we were all in the service industry. We were called to serve our king with complete obedience, but instead of doing that, we decided to serve ourselves. We decided to serve ourselves. But God graciously provided you was a free gift of salvation in spite of stealing from him what was rightfully his. In Christ, that debt is forgiven and all is freely given to you. You have a great opportunity to show that to a server at a restaurant or wherever you find yourself throughout the course of the day. You have a great opportunity to demonstrate grace in the way that you received grace. You were not a qualified recipient for salvation. God made you that when he lavished his grace upon you. And so what we do is we do that. We tip. We tip in this instance, right? We tip a large tip and say, uh, and speak the truth of the gospel. And then we pray for a pathway for the gospel to land in their heart. But let's not build barriers with graceless with gracelessness by leaving a piece of paper. God has called you to be his ambassador. God has called you to be his ambassador. Ministers of reconciliation is what he has called us. Not just the pastor, not just the super Christians, 
He's called all of us to be the ministers of reconciliation, to proclaim the gospel in our world. So Onesimus stole what he was rightfully Philemon's. And Paul paints a picture of the gospel by paying for the debt himself and then reminding Philemon that the gospel is way more important than earthly debts. And so the question here is then, how are we in the same position, right? We read this story. None of us, are, none of us were bondservants who ran away and had to reconcile this situation, right? None of us find ourselves in the position of Philemon or Onesimus today just because of cultural differences. But the reality is we are, or we were, in the exact same position, right? We owed a great debt. We stole what was rightfully God's. Again, this is the idea. This is the understanding. We stole what was rightfully God's. We were made to serve him and to honor and glorify him. And we stole that and we redirected it at us. We redirected it at us. This is the heart of sin, the redirecting of what we owe to God onto ourselves. And there's a simple word for it. It's pride. A simple word. We say this word all the time. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And it's not only enmity between man and man, but enmity toward God. Enmity is hostility towards someone or something. So we stole what was rightfully God's. Pride is an assault against God because although he stands at the center of all things, somehow we have the ability to make it all about us. Lewis will go on in Mere Christianity and say, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. It's metaphorical, but it makes a lot of sense, right? When we're prideful, when we act in pride, we're looking down. We're not looking up at our, our king. We're prideful. We steal from God. We take for ourselves what is rightfully due to him. I'm sure that's the question. Like, where is that, where has the root of pride permeated our lives? We ask the question, are we prideful? The answer is yes. The question is, how can we become more like Jesus in his humility? Lewis will say this as well. About People who are humble. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a real humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. I love that description. Greasy, smarmy. Those aren't adjectives I usually use. but Who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about is that he seemed cheerful, intelligent chap who really took an interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Rick Warren kind of sums that idea up in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, humility is not thinking of your, less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We don't leave it there, though, right? We don't just think about ourselves less and then leave this vacuum in our mind. Rather, we fill that with thoughts of our creator, of our king. If our thoughts are always about us, positive or negative, positive or negative, they're, they're prideful. Your thoughts might be like a Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. Or they might be, I'm totally worthless. 
But the reality is they're both prideful because when your brain was designated to fix the majority of your thoughts on the affections on your creator, and when you fix your thoughts or your affections on yourself, you rob him of what he's due. And so Jesus came to show us the humility that was required of us. The humility that we were created for by doing it perfectly. He was the word who took on flesh. The creator came to his creation like a creature. And Paul says in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus was found in human form and humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. His thoughts and his affections were fixed perfectly on the Father. And he did not, or, and he, not only did he show us humility, he made it possible for us to be humble. Although he himself owed no debt of sin because he was sinless. He was sinless. He owed no debt of sin like Onesimus or like you or I. He paid our debt entirely. And he made us new creatures. New creatures that now have the ability to fix our affections and our attention on our creator. And not pridefully on ourselves. So two thoughts in conclusion. Sort of as a response to this question. It's kind of the way that I'm thinking. Friends, are you living like a debtor despite being forgiven? There's a few ways that we can do this. I'm going to focus on two. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we living like debtors despite being forgiven? First way that we might be living like a debtor despite being forgiven is if we fail to forgive when we know that we've been forgiven. You'll remember back from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is not to say that we earn forgiveness by forgiving, but we prove ourselves forgiven by forgiving others. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with forgiveness, gosh, this is like the biggest thing. I run into this so often in my own heart and with others. Forgiveness is just a small little piece that we're still holding on to from a past action 5, 10, 15 years ago that we have not released or understood or forgiven for. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with forgiveness, you're living as a debtor who has no debt. And we must, with extreme urgency, apply the gospel to this situation. We must, with extreme urgency, apply the gospel to this situation. If you're here this morning and you feel like there is someone out there or something that you have not fully forgiven, someone that you have not fully forgiven this morning, just a little bit you're holding on to, with extreme prejudice, apply the gospel to it. Jesus Christ canceled, like Paul says in Colossians 2.14, Jesus Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's not a little flake of it still hanging out that's being held against us. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And by living the life that owed no debt of sin, Jesus had the ability to take on the sin of the world. He took on your sin. Brothers and sisters, he took on your sin. His sacrifice was sufficient. 
His forgiveness has washed you clean. You do not need to hold on to things against other people. Your debt is forgiven. Now go freely forgive. So that's the first way that we may be living like a debtor despite being forgiven. The second way, I'm just going to give you a second, there's many applications here, but the second one, the second way we may be living like a debtor despite being forgiven is always beating yourself up. (laughs) Don't get me wrong here. Don't get me wrong. Your sin is serious business. Your sin is serious business. And we repent and we, in faith, turn to Christ Jesus and receive the truth of the gospel. Repentance is not a one-time act. It is a lifelong action of turning and walking the other way from sin. We inhabit sinful flesh. That's our reality. Currently, one day we will not, but right now we do. And we need to kill that sin. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says, be killing sin or it, will be, or it will be killing you. So our sin is serious business. We have to be killing it. Do not allow it to fester or to linger, but through the power of the Spirit, move past it. Get beyond it. It's not that you won't stumble and fall. It's not that you won't succumb to it time or, or maybe, maybe even several times in your future. It's not that your hope is found in killing your sin. Your hope is found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we are called to, as those who are becoming more like Christ Jesus and who have the power to kill sin, we are called to kill sin. And so if that's true of you, if there's something that you're holding on to, some sin that's unrepentant in your heart, go home, kill it. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a few minutes. Kill it before you get here. If you need to take some more time, take some more time, but kill your sin. Know that you're forgiven, but don't be okay with your sin. Paul never says to be okay with our sin. He's not using grace as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but rather as grace as an opportunity to get beyond it. So, the reality though is that some of us beat ourselves up over it beyond a point where we consider it healthy. But know that Jesus canceled, again, Colossians 2.14, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did that for you. He did that to restore you, to make you whole. It's his work on your behalf that makes this possible. You don't earn your salvation by repentance. Your salvation makes repentance possible. So the call then is clear to rest in the gospel. God sees you as his child. He loves you. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter. He knows the difficulties that you're going through. He experienced them here on earth. He knows the hardship and the the turmoil, the suffering that you're in the midst of this morning. He understands these things. This is the gospel applied to this situation. It boils down to this question, where do we find our identity? If it's in Jesus, if we find our identity in Christ Jesus, then we will recognize that our debts have been paid, that they'll be forgiven. If we find our identity in our performance, 
maybe at work, or our performance in dealing with our sin. If we find our identity there, we'll inevitably beat ourselves up because we're going to fail. So it boils down to that question, where do you find your identity? And if you find it in your performance in any area of life, if you find it in your performance in any area of your life, with extreme urgency, again, apply the gospel. Jesus did it all so that you don't have to. Jesus has forgiven you. Yes, again, be grieved by your sin. But repent, turn from it, acknowledge that Jesus has handled it, and that any attempt that you make to handle it will inevitably fail. But he loved us. God loved us. He sent his son for us so that when we get an F, Jesus gets an A+. And he says, your F is now an A plus in me. So stop acting like a debtor when your debts are forgiven. These debts have been, again, like Paul says, Colossians 2.14, been nailed to the cross. Onesimus' debts were nailed to the cross. Paul reminds him of this. Paul reminds Philemon that Jesus took his debts too by assuming Onesimus' debt. The gospel was that important to, the, to Paul, and it's that important to us. Which is why we're going to move now to the Lord's table.